Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be focused on 3 through 7, but uh, I'll begin at verse 1. This is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while if necessary. You have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold which is perishable. Even though tested by fire. May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us attentive minds and hearts to your word. Father, I pray that that we would not be distracted by those sitting around us. I pray that we would not be distracted by thoughts that go beyond your word and on to what we're going to do for the rest of the day. But, Father, that you would give us a focus for the half hour of this preaching on your word. We do ask that you would give us forgiveness for the the ways, the many times when we have just zoned out when it comes to the preaching of your word, when it comes to the reading of your word, when it comes to private devotions. Father, the word so easily just uh, does not penetrate our hearts. And so, Father, we're asking that you would bless us this morning with attention to your word and through that word, Father, that you would do the work of perfecting and sanctifying us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So last Sunday, as we came to this passage, I spent time trying to get us to think about the fact that obedience, obedience to God is, is a joyful response to God's choice of us. It's a joyful response to his election of his children, right? 
even when obedience is costly or painful because it's birthed in the context of suffering or it's birthed in the context of persecution, God's children still rightly and strongly desire to be like him. God's children want to be like their father. God's children still rightly and strongly desire to be like him. The encouragement toward that kind of faith, that kind of Christian life, continues in the verses that um, we just read. Not only does that encouragement continue, but Peter's description of the glory into which we've been called by God's grace intensifies and it expands. Right. So before we continue on that theme of obedience flowing from the comprehension of the blessings we've received from God, um, <clears throat> the first statement in verse 3, let's just focus there for a moment. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's something awkward about that statement. Um, the Apostle Peter, like the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 1.3 and the Apostle John in Revelation 1.6, speaks of God the Father as the God and Father of Jesus Christ. None of the writers of the New Testament shy away from speaking of order within the Godhead. It's all there in the writers of the New Testament. And so they're willing to go against the philosophers who would rather have a quasi-modal God in which the three have no distinctions between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. But Scripture, brothers and sisters, which is inspired by the third person of the Trinity, let's not forget, is happy to speak of God the Father as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The Father has always been the Father and the Son has always been the Son. The Son has never been the Father and the Father has never been the Son. There is an eternal aspect to the order within the Trinity. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. That is order. And it's an eternal order. And yet, there are not three gods, but one God. With three persons equal in power and glory. And so, that, that the Apostle Peter here states that the Father is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaks to the eternal sonship of the Son. And... If you deny that, if you deny the eternal sonship of the Son, you swim against the current of Scripture, and you undo the eternal order of the three-in-one. Now, you might not think that that's a very controversial statement, but that is all the rage in theological circles right now. Order within the Trinity is being denied And the philosophers, not the theologians, the philosophers are the ones who are trying to deny that order within the Godhead. And what they're going to end up doing is being Sabalian, being modalists. One God who appears in three different ways. 
Right? But we affirm this statement, and here it is, just in this little blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting how that order is built into what is said there. Now, having said that, let's move on to the next phrase. And when, when the word is preached, you should have a Bible open on your lap in front of you. Or you should have your phone out with the passage on your phone especially a passage like this in Peter. It's so dense that you're going to get lost in what I say up here unless you have as a reference the scriptures. So I really urge you to have a Bible open in front of you um, as we every Sunday, not just for this, but um, this particularly. And so we move on to the next phrase, which is describing the blessed Father of the Lord Jesus Christ by what he has done. It's describing God the Father by what he has done. Notice the second phrase of verse 3 begins with who, and then after a prepositional phrase, has. So the Father who has done something. We're, We're again learning of what God has done for us. God the Father, all flowing from his nature as a merciful and gracious God and a covenant keeping God, has caused us to be born again. This, as we remember, ties to what we were looking at last time, that God the Father has chosen us according to his foreknowledge. What's the difference about, between saying chosen and, or elected and saying born again? Well, election is the aspect of our salvation that exists outside of time. We were chosen before the foundation of the world, and that means that election happens outside of time, in the mind of God, so to speak. But we experience being born again in time. The Spirit's work of regeneration is the outworking of God's eternal election in time. And as John 3 reminds us, a man must be born again or he is not able to see the kingdom of God. So when God chooses his children, the Spirit births them anew in time. God the Father causes us to be born again by his Spirit. And what of that new birth? What comes with that new birth? What, what do we gain? We gain what Peter says next. We, when we are born again, we come alive. And being alive, we are given eyes to see certain spiritual truths, foremost of which is that intense realization that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That living hope, that alive conviction, is, it's the fulfillment of what the Apostle Paul says. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Without the new birth, the heart is incapable of believing that God the Father raised his son from the dead. It refuses to believe it. Another fruit of the new, new birth is, as the Apostle Peter puts it in verse 4, that we understand that we have obtained an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven. What kind of an inheritance are we talking about here? Is this speaking of some sort of monetary inheritance that Christians will receive after they die? Is it speaking of material Yes, 
and no. The inheritance that we receive as the elect of God is a way of speaking of the entirety of the benefits that come to God's children in the life to come. Right? But much of these benefits, perhaps all, are, are really material benefits. A resurrected body. A new earth. A city in which to live for out, forever. Salvation is a status that leads to lived life in a material world, not, not just being subsumed, so to speak, into God for some sort of disembodied enlightenment experience. No, our salvation is very embodied, and our inheritance is very physical. It's very physical. Think of Abraham. He was looking for an inheritance, but it was not among this world where he lived as a stranger and alien, a theme that's already been brought up by the Apostle Peter. We read in this, this, um, we read this in Hebrews, and it speaks to the inheritance that, are our, that is ours if we are children of God. Hebrews 11:8 says, "By faith, Abraham, when he was called." Obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead as that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. It continues on, it says, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them, And having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, listen to this, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he has prepared a city for them. The inheritance that is awaiting God's children is that heavenly city. Prepared by God for your eternal Sabbath if you are a child of God. It is the consummation of the election of the Father worked out by, for us by the Son of God and worked in us by the Holy Spirit. And so that inheritance is not like the inheritance that we could receive in this world, which moths and rust destroy and which Ponzi schemes break in and steal. Right? The inheritance given, us to buy, given to us by Almighty God is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, and is reserved in heaven for you. God Almighty secures This inheritance, because he is the architect and builder of this heavenly city, this residence of God's precious children. There will be no failing trusses, there will be no infrastructure problems in that undying city. Revelation 21 describes what we are to inherit. 
It describes that city. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So note that there will be one There will be no one there in this inheritance that's promised to us, that new city that is the inheritance, that dwelling with God in his tabernacle with him will be our inheritance. But note that there is no one there who would defile that inheritance. No defiling will happen. No sin will defile that place. And also we read this about that city, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That inheritance is secure because God's throne is in heaven. He rules with sovereign power over all the nations, but his special presence is in that city. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And that city you stand to inherit if you are Christ's child This is the city you stand to inherit is where that throne is. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bond servants will serve him. They will see his face His name will be on their foreheads. There there will no longer be any night. And they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So think for a moment about your glorious inheritance. You have that glorious inheritance if you have been born again. Right? It is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It was reserved in heaven for you because of the one who stands behind it. Right? Your inheritance has been established by the work of the God who cannot lie. The God whose, whose will can't be broken. Right? Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. The one who created the Milky Way is... Is he able to establish your inheritance? Do you think it's secure? 
The one who raised Jesus from the dead, is he able to secure your inheritance? I think he has the power to do so. In fact, look what the Apostle Peter says next. He describes God's born-again children as, as those who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only are you birthed anew by God, not only are you furnished with the hope of the, of the resurrection, and not only are you promised an absolutely secure and glorious inheritance, you're protected by the power of God. All the way until that day when you stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Even while others are accusing God and standing condemned, you'll be protected by the power of God. And so your faith now today, your faith right now is God's power at work in you. Born again, given hope, promised an inheritance, supplied with power by means of faith right up until the last day. And what is that faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And so your faith is that very instrument by which God saves you. It is the gift of God and it is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Your faith is the power of God at work in you. So live by faith. Right? Not by sight, not by feelings, not by social media, not by your successes, not by your moods. Live by faith in God. Believe each and every one of the promises of God to you. Now all of that, all of that, of faith that protects you, a glorious inheritance that is indescribably rich, Right? Resurrection power that comes by means of Jesus Christ. All of that is an embarrassment of riches, isn't it? I mean, none of you deserve it. And all of us are dust. Breathed into by a God who had no need of us. Right? But all of this embarrassment of riches is what he's promised to us. God has done everything. God has given us all things. God has been so mindful of us, even though we're, we're just dust, we're mere creatures. God has promised so much. He has secured so much. God has been so gracious. And that brings us to the Apostle Peter's next statement. In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. So it's kind of like the Apostle Peter is saying, what of all your little while trials? What of all that? I mean, look at what you have in Jesus Christ. What of your trials? I mean, come on. See, do you see the, the, the universe of blessings that God has given to you? Can you really be cosmically bummed about anything when you consider how the Almighty Creator has given you so much? He's given you so much power, so much hope, so much to look forward to. 
But the shocking thing about the trials that come to us is how much they shake us, right? A sick child, a surgery, a lost job, a seizure, right? A car wreck, a stand taken on some issue that causes your family to think you're incredibly uncompassionate. A new diagnosis, right? Having, having older children living in your home. Another year of singleness. Tension in your marriage. Right? And on and on and on and on. And, I, and some of us think, yeah, those are terrible trials. And they would, they would shake me to my foundations. All these things can become so pervasive in our thoughts that we, we stop thinking about the love of God for his children. We have a tendency to let the trials of our lives stifle our joy in God, right? We have a a tendency to let those trials um, stifle our joy in in what he's done, in the work that he's done from beginning to end for us. We're um, We're told here, though, to greatly rejoice in God's wonderful work. We're told to greatly rejoice. Even though trials come along, we're told to continue rejoicing. For some of us, even little trials take our minds entirely off our inheritance in Jesus Christ. For for others, it's, it's, it's not that your mind gets totally taken off. We're just so desirous of peace in this life that we're we're like the prodigal son. We demand our inheritance today. I want peace now. Right? Give me my inheritance so that I can go live the way I want to live. We are really incapable of waiting for the fulfillment of our inheritance in the future. And there is no joy for us in waiting. Right? For others, you have not disciplined yourself to rejoice in the Lord. And in the knowledge of your inheritance. And so every little trial that comes along throws, throws you off. Right? You just haven't disciplined yourself. You haven't remembered this command here. Rejoice in the Lord. We have a tendency to give the temporary too much weight and the permanent too little weight. Right? We mind our own weaknesses more than the power engaged to carry them through. We, we will have regrets. I think one of the regrets we'll have as we enjoy the peace of that eternal Sabbath, we will have, if we can have regrets at that point. I'm not so sure about that. We will have regrets, if we can, along these lines, that we spent too much time thinking about the impermanent and the temporary and too little about what was coming. The Apostle Paul said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed to us. Not, you, can't, you can't make a contrast at all. There's no way you can compare these things. They are so disparate. Calvin said this, but it seems somewhat inconsistent when he says that the faithful who exalted with joy were at the same time sorrowful, for these are contrary feelings. But the faithful know by experience how these things can exist together much better than can be expressed in words. However, to explain the matter in a few words, 
We may say that the faithful are not logs of wood, nor have they so divested themselves of human feelings, but they are affected with sorrow, fear, danger, and feel poverty as an evil and persecutions as hard and difficult to be borne. Hence, they experience sorrow from evils, but it is so mitigated by faith that they cease not at the same time to rejoice. Thus, sorrow does not prevent their joy, but on the contrary, gives place to it. Again, though joy overcomes sorrow, yet it does not put an end to it, for it does not divest us of humanity. And hence it appears what true patience is, its beginning and as it were its root, is the knowledge of God's blessings. That's where patience comes in, says Calvin. Knowledge of God's blessings. Especially of that gratuitous adoption which with which he has favored us. For all who raise hither their minds find it an easy thing calmly to bear all evils. For, for whence is it that our minds are pressed down with grief, except that we have no participation of spiritual things, but all they who regard their troubles as necessary trials for their salvation not only rise above them, but also turn them to an occasion of joy. Right Now, there's a phrase in this verse that is hard to understand. Why does the Apostle Peter say, if necessary? It's awkward, isn't it? In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. What we're being taught here is that trials come upon us not in random fashion, without God's supervision. Trials come upon us when necessary, and they are gifts from God meant to do what? What the Apostle Peter says next. Verse 7 begins with, so that. Trials come upon us so that the proof of our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So get this. Trials come upon us not to make us miserable, Now, not all of you have faith for that statement. I have a hard time with that statement. Trials come upon us not to make us miserable, though they can cause and do cause distress, but rather to prove our faith. Right? Trials display faith as an authentic testimony to God's grace. Right? Trials expose our testimony. One of the most distressing parts of trials, if you're anything like me, is we tend to react to them like we are worldlings. And so there's always a distress on top of the distress. You have an awareness that you did not handle that like a child of God. And that's in the back of your mind. Even And it adds, it may be more profound distress than the original distress. We tend to react to our trials like worldlings. Something goes wrong, and instead of interpreting it through the grid of God's sovereignty, we interpret it as any worldling would do. We get busy trying to correct it. We do not take the time to think through what God might be revealing to us, how God might be testing our faith, how God might desire us to grow and acknowledge him through this trial. 
I think one of the best things that we can do when trials come upon us, at least the trials that come upon us that aren't a result of our sin or doing wrong, one of the best things we can do is to be patient initially in our response. Be patient. Wait. Try to interpret God's providence through the Scripture. If trials are necessary and come upon us to prove the genuineness of our faith, would it not be good to pause and to pray and to reflect and to learn and to interpret through Scripture? We get hung up on how hard our trials are. And imbibing, especially imbibing the hatred of of suffering from our culture, but, but we get so hung up on how hard our trials are that we, we seek to be free from those trials. But get this, what if those trials are from God? What if those trials are necessary? What if those trials are for the proving of your faith? Right, here's a difficult question for some of you. Would, would you rather have freedom from suffering... Or a proven faith? Which would you rather have? You can't, you can't have the latter without the former. You can't have the latter without some sort of trials and suffering. Would you rather be free from trials or, or to be put into affliction by God so that you have a faith that is unbelievably strong? Have you known people who have extraordinary faith? Have you known people who, in every situation, they, they have faith in God? Right? They're not cynical ever. They're, they're firmly, firmly have their minds fixed on the inheritance that awaits them. And they can approach every situation with faith, extraordinary faith. You know what's probably true about them is they've probably suffered. They've suffered. And likely what you will find in that person is that they are a strange combination of deeply profound sadness because of those trials and unmitigated joy because they're able to think beyond those trials, beyond the sadness. One of the commentaries I was reading says, said this, and I thought it was helpful, heaviness of spirit occasioned by manifold temptations and much spiritual joy, may consist together in one and the same soul. These contrary qualities are sometimes in the hearts of the godly, not only in a remiss degree at the same time, so as hardly they will, not, they will know which of them is prevalent. Right? They, sometimes they're so mixed up that the sadness and the joy, it's hard to tell which is which and which is more prevalent. But also in their height, sometimes they are successive, one consideration making them very sad, and another succeeding thereto, making them so glad as hardly they can keep their joy within. Right? That's faith. That's faith, believing that what God has said is true. Trials come, and we think they are of no value. Trials come and we want to be free from those things. And we have to change the way we think about our trials. Peter contradicts the sentiment that they are of no value. A proven faith, he says, then, 
A proven faith is more precious than gold which is perishable. It's like we become practitioners of the prosperity gospel each time we face a trial, don't we? Or or we're agnostic. We're told here, though, to rejoice because a proven faith is more precious than gold. Strong faith. Would anybody trade a strong faith away for gold? A faith that never doubts, that lifts its head even during the worst kind of persecution. Would anybody trade that away for a bag of gold? Finally, our passage teaches us that our proven faith is a means to an end. Peter writes, So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable even though tested by fire, may be found... To result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so for those who persevere by God's grace, here's a description of that praise and honor. And it's speaking of the praise and honor that God's children receive. Not that God himself receives. He will receive the ultimate praise and glory in every action throughout all history that's ever happened. We know that that's the end of everything. But there is praise for God's children. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father inherits the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world so dear brothers and sisters I know you are suffering there's no reason for us to compare our sufferings and try to diminish our own sufferings because somebody else seems to be suffering more suffering is suffering Okay? I know you are suffering. I know you are trembling about the future. I know you're assaulted by all kinds of temptations and worries. But zoom the camera back. Right? Zoom back. Have the whole picture in mind. Wait upon God who will sanctify, you, sanctify to you all of your intense sufferings. And when he is good and ready, when he is ready... He will announce upon you a well done and present to you your inheritance, which will never fade away, which will always be. For now, you've got the weight of painful crosses to bear, but on that last day, every burden will be removed and your faith will be superfluous. Your faith will be sight. Right? You'll be free to love and enjoy God forever. So now, for a little while, by faith, accept the distress of various trials. Amen.